0: Well, good morning, everybody. This is our first sermon to, if you could see it from my perspective, it's an empty room. Uh, But I know all you guys are out there, all you girls are out there keeping safe, uh, staying away from potential viruses, staying away from all kinds of things that could hurt you. Um, But we don't want to forsake the gathering together. So um, I'm here in the sanctuary getting ready to preach a sermon that hopefully you guys are going to see. And you guys are going to give me some feedback and let me know that you saw it. Uh, so that I know that this is getting to all of our church folks uh, here at Stapleton Baptist Church. We're going to pick up right where we left off, and we're getting ready for Easter uh, here at Stapleton Baptist Church. And as we go through Lent, we've been preaching so- through several passages that traditionally go along with Lent. And today we're going to be preaching out of First Samuel chapter 16. Uh, so if you'll get your copy of God's Word and, and turn to First Ch- Samuel chapter 16, uh, I'll just go ahead and read it, and then we'll pray. And we'll dive right into the text. Uh, So 1 Samuel chapter 16, reading in verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here, So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Uh, So this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for today. Thank you that even in the midst of something scary like a virus that may keep us from coming to a building, that does not not make us cease to be the church. Um, Lord, even as I'm standing in a room right now that looks empty, I know the room is not empty. I know you're here. I know that as our people are sitting in their houses watching this sermon, uh, they're not alone either, that we're all united together in you. We are one body and nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from your love and nothing can separate us from the love that we have for one another. So Father, I pray as we all uh, study your word separately, um, but still in a way together, I pray that you would bless us as we study this text, as we seek you in it. And Lord, as we seek the change that will come in our hearts um, from you working um, through your word on us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want us to look at uh, this passage today as it's a traditional passage heading up toward Easter. You've got a lot going on here, that you've got the calling of David as the, the king that God will bring all of his promises uh, to Israel through, that Jesus is actually going to be a descendant of King David, that David shares a lot of similarities with Jesus uh, in that David is also from a Bethlehem family, that David is also uh, a king that had to be sought among the animals, um, that David was known as a shepherd. Um, and David was one that nobody really expected. Uh, but today, as we go through this sermon, I want us to see uh, three ways that God evaluates us. and And because of the way that because of God evaluating us this way, maybe we should evaluate other people this way as well. Or maybe I should say we shouldn't evaluate people this way. So uh, first I want us to see that God loves simple obedience. Uh, God loves simple obedience. Uh, As we talk about uh, the acceptance of simple obedience by God, uh, we need to go back and look at the very first verse in this passage. Um, In verse 1, Scripture reads, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Saul. Saul is actually a central character in verse one. And this is really one of the last times that he is a central character in this redemptive story. He had his opportunity, but he also squandered uh, that opportunity. Uh, So we need to talk about Saul as a person. We need to talk about Saul as a man. And the first thing we need to know is that Saul was actually ritually strong. Um, that as far as the actual behaviors that would have gone along with being a king or a correctly practicing Jew, Saul, you can do a lot worse than Saul. Uh, first, we know that Saul knew and instructed people in ritual cleanliness. If you actually go uh, to First Samuel chapter 14, uh, there are a couple of verses there that could show us um, some of the ritual uh, strength of Saul. Uh, that if you go and you look at First Samuel chapter 14, uh, down in verse uh, 32, if you go to verse 32, um, the people rush on the spoil uh, after a defeat of the Philistines. It says the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. This was a big no, no under Israelite law, that if you were if you gave a sacrifice or if you ate meat, you did not eat it with the blood. This was ritually impure. And in verse 33, they go and tell Saul and say, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, so this is Saul, you have dealt treacherously, treacherously against who? Against the covenant. Against the Lord, that this was against God's laws. So Saul actually knew the law enough to know that when his military started eating meat with the blood, this was wrong in God's eyes. This was ritually impure and they didn't need to do this. This was actually a sin. And under the Israelite law, sin required atonement, that something had to be done about the fact that his people had eaten these oxen with the blood. So this is Saul's solution. And again, it's a correct solution that he knew and instructed his people in ritual purity, but he also built altars to God. If you look at verse 34 in chapter 14, immediately after the verse we just read, Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people, say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep Slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And you can see after in in verse uh, 33, after he says, you've dealt treacherously He rolls a large stone to himself, he gets them to to bring it to him, and he actually constructs an altar so that food can be sacrificed in the correct way and drained of its blood and it can be offered as a sacrifice to God and then consumed in a ritually pure way. So Saul knows enough of the law to know that his people ought not to be doing certain things. He's building altars of worship to God that we have no indication that they're unacceptable altars of worship. So Saul is bringing uh, his people kind of in line with Israelite law. He's instructing them. He's building altars. And then finally, another indication of ritual purity that Saul shows is he rids the land of occultists. Uh, Now, this is already after Saul's fall as king. But if you look at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 28, you find out as Saul has been rejected by God for uh, going against uh, King David later on, God has actually ceased to speak to Saul. Uh, So what happens is Saul has to go try and find guidance from somewhere else. And in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 28, it says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented uh, for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and spiritists out of the land. Why did Saul do that? Saul did that because mediums and spiritists, occultists, were actually illegal. Under, under God's divine law that he gave to Moses at Sinai. So if you look at Saul just as a person, Saul is very ritually on point uh, that he gets a lot of the, the nitty gritty rules correctly. And to his credit, a lot of later Israelites get a lot of these things wrong. So Saul is following dietary laws and restrictions. He's building altars to God that seem to be acceptable to him. And he's putting wickedness out of the land. So Saul is very ritually strong, but we're told in verse 1 of our passage today in 1 Samuel 16 that God says he has rejected Saul from reigning over Israel. Why is that? Well, in doing research for this sermon, I noticed as I was reading some of my commentaries, I was actually looking up Saul in the Lexham Bible Dictionary, and it says the reason why God rejected Saul once he was king is unclear. No, it's not. The reason that God rejected them is unclear. Go back one chapter in your Bibles. You probably won't even have to flip a page over. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23, uh, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you, now this is the reason, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just told me that Saul was really good at following the word of the Lord. Well, yes and no. He was really good at following the obscure ritualistic rules. He was really good at looking in the law and saying, okay, Clause 1 says this, Clause 2 says this, Statute B says this. He's really good at doing those things. But when God gives him a direct command, he doesn't do it. Saul had just been given a direct command from God in which God told him in the particular battle he was fighting, I want you to leave nothing. Saul takes prisoners. He takes animals as spoil. He basically completely disregards the direct command of God that God gave him specifically for this battle. Saul doesn't do it. Saul had clear instructions to follow, and he refused to follow them. He did not obey. Great at ritual, bad at love. Great at rules, bad at faithfulness. Great at statutes and regulations, bad at loyalty. He didn't want to actually listen when God had something to say to him. Do you know that it's possible for you to have great rituals and not know God at all? It's possible for you to get up in the morning and say, Oh, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go to church. Hey, you can't do that right now. You're trying to stay home and stay safe. So, this has probably disrupted a lot of your rituals that. If, if you're like me, you've got kind of a rhythm to your week and you like to go through it. And, you know, you do this on Monday, this on Tuesday, this on Wednesday. Maybe you go to church on Wednesday. You get up, you come to Sunday school on Sunday morning. Then you come to church Sunday morning then you go home and you eat lunch. And then maybe you take a nap or then you come back at Sunday at 6 p.m. And you've got kind of a routine that you like to go through. You've got ritual. You know that you can have a ritual that's great. You can do your Bible reading every morning. You can spend two hours in prayer if you've got. If you've got the ability to do that, you can be at church every time the doors are open. Do you know that you can have great ritual and not know anything about God? You can. You can have great ritual and not know anything about God. Look at what Jesus had to say to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That the scribes and Pharisees got all of the little things. but They missed the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. They didn't get it. That They had the rules, they had the regulations, but they didn't know God. How do I know that they didn't know God? He was standing in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ, and they murdered him. They murdered him. They didn't recognize him. They thought he was this little kid from backwater Galilee Uh, who didn't know his daddy, who was confused. Some of them thought he was a Samaritan. Some of them thought he was demon possessed. Some of them thought he was crazy, but they all thought he needed to go. The reality was that he was God. He was standing in front of them and they were so caught up in their rituals and rules and regulations that they didn't know the God that they said they'd been worshipping their entire lives when he was standing in front of them. And as possible as it is for them to do that then, it is possible for us to do that now. That you can know everything about the rules and regulations and be so distant from God that you don't recognize him when he's standing in front of you. What the Pharisees and the scribes were doing, that wasn't obedience. That wasn't obedience because if they were obedient to God, they would have recognized him when he was standing in front of them. So you can have great rituals and not know God, and you can have tons of works and not know God too. So well, Josh, I understand what you're saying about rituals, but what about works? Aren't I supposed to obey God? Am I not supposed to just do what God tells me to do? Well, yes, you're supposed to do what God tells you to do. But can I challenge you on what's your reason for doing it? What's your reason for doing it? Are you trying to earn his favor or are you doing it out of love? You can do lots of things for somebody that you don't love. And it can be totally self-seeking. It can be totally uh self-centered look at what jesus uh had to say here check this out he says not everyone who says to me lord lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father in heaven many will say to me in that day lord lord have we not prophesied in your name cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you and depart from me you who practice lawlessness now that's a terrifying prospect For Jesus to say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Stunning that Jesus's accusation against them would be that they practice lawlessness, because in their eyes they think they've got everything together. Haven't we cast out demons and worked wonders and and done all kinds of things in your name? We did this. We did this. We did this. I tithed. I gave an offering. I gave to Lottie Moon. I gave to Annie Armstrong. I went on mission trips. I sponsored mission trips. I sponsor a missionary. I had perfect attendance in Sunday school. I was some of y'all. You know, I I, I missed this, but I. I did the entire course in training union. Um, I served as a deacon. I did this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Jesus, isn't that enough for you to let me into heaven? And Jesus' response doesn't say anything about their works. Did you notice that? Look at it again. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus doesn't say anything about their works. He says something about the fact that they didn't know him. That there was a relationship that was lacking. That it's very, very, very possible for you to be all about rules and regulations and works. And and you're trying to to get something out of it. But really, what God desires is simple obedience. You don't know God through a list of rules. Ask yourself, when God wanted you to know him, how did he communicate to you? What's the best way that God ever communicated to humanity? Jesus. Jesus is the way that God communicated with humanity. Someone for us to know. And his life is recorded in the pages of scripture. Jesus jumps off the page when you read it. He's not a ritual. He's not a list of rules and regulations. Jesus is a person. Look at what Jesus says. They asked him in John 6, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? They want to know what to do so that they can have eternal life. They want to know how to be certain that God is going to accept them into glory. And Jesus answered and says to them, This is the work of God. Now listen not rules, not regulations, not ritual, not check boxes, not do this, do that, all that exhausting stuff. What did Jesus say was was the work that God desired? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. What do you believe about Jesus? Who is he? Because the simple obedience that God desires is that you would believe in the one whom he has sent. Saul missed the boat. He had all the rules and all the regulations. But when God sent a messenger to him that said, hey, this is directly from me. This is what I want you to do. Saul valued the rules and regulations so much that he thought he could obey them better than God wanted him to. You can have lots of rituals that make you feel great about yourself and you will do nothing but air condition the bus to hell. You will confuse yourself and miss it if you just don't trust Jesus. Nobody's going to go to heaven because they did enough good stuff. You can't do enough good stuff. The way that you can be guaranteed eternal life is to believe in the one God sent, Jesus Christ, God's only son. That's the simple obedience that God desires. So first, I want us to see that God desires simple obedience. Second, I want us to see that God's not looking for flawless appearances. God's not looking for flawless appearances. Isn't that great? (laughs) Um, Y'all can't see it. I'm standing here. I'm wearing jeans and tennis shoes. I'm not wearing my normal Sunday stuff, but I figured I would put on a a, a shirt and a coat so that maybe it would be a, a little bit. Uh, like Sunday morning when y'all saw this video. But God's not looking for flawless appearances. God's not looking for somebody who uh, checks off all of the uh, uh, humanly desirable boxes, you know, looks good, tall enough, uh, smells good, uh, shops at this particular place. You know, God's not looking for somebody that checks off all those boxes. If you look at 1 Samuel 16, start reading in verse two. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. He's afraid that, that Saul is going to, be the only one that recognizes, uh, hey, this is what anointing a king looks like. Because up to this point, Saul's been the only Israelite king that's been anointed. So if he hears that, hey, you know, Samuel went up to Bethlehem and and poured oil out of a ram's horn onto a kid's head, Saul's going to be pretty upset because that's exactly what Samuel did to him when he got anointed king. So Samuel's a little bit concerned that Saul is going to turn his wrath on him. And God says, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about Jesse uh, later. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one which I named for you. So Samuel shows up. He goes to Bethlehem. The elders of the town see him coming and they're nervous and they say, "Do you come peaceably. Uh, Go and read the end of 1 Samuel 15 and you'll figure out why they worried. Uh, whether or not he's coming peaceably. Samuel uh, is fresh off of executing an enemy king because Saul wouldn't do it. So they're afraid that Samuel's showing up and he's about to execute uh, somebody else. Uh, So he says, yes, I've come peaceably. You guys need to get ready for a sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves. And then he goes to Jesse's house and personally consecrates Jesse and his sons. And all consecrate means is he sets them apart. Uh, for a special purpose, so they come to the sacrifice, and when they came, the first thing that happens is Jesse's got this big oldest boy Eliab. Now Eliab, I don't know if you're like me, you hear the you hear the word Eliab, and Eliab is all of a sudden he's this he's this big, tall, bulky. I mean, it doesn't sound like a little mama's boy name to call somebody Eliab, uh, and he's not. He's not a mama's boy at all. He's he's the biggest. He's physically imposing. Um, And Samuel sees him and says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him that uh, he remembers the last time he's anointed somebody king. And you know what? Saul was a physically imposing guy, too, that when he was anointed king, he stood head and shoulders above everybody else that surrounded him. And if you remember the David and Goliath episode, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to quote from it here, uh, but. David gets offered Saul's armor because Saul is nervous to send this little shepherd boy with a sling and, and, and five stones out to go fight this Philistine giant. And he says, well, you ought to at least put some armor on. And I can't think of any armor that's better than mine. So he brings him some armor and David can't fit into it. You know, David's a little scrawny dude. So uh, David is not the biggest guy, but Eliab, he's he's a pretty big old boy. He reminds Samuel a lot of Saul. But God says, no, do not look at his appearance or physical stature in verse seven, because I have refused him. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God, but the Lord looks at the heart. Even Samuel A real man of God. Now, we don't have any questions about whether or not Samuel was the real deal. We know Samuel was a real man of God. He's been listening to God since he was a little boy sleeping in the tabernacle. So Samuel knows what he's doing. He knows the Lord. And then even Samuel makes this mistake where he thinks he has an idea of what God's chosen one looks like. And you know what? We as church folks kind of do that, too. If we're totally honest with ourselves, we have an idea of what church folks look like. Uh, so much so that if you're not careful, you can, you know, when someone shows up who doesn't fit the mold of what a church person looks like, you know, you can find yourself, you can cut eyes at them or be a little bit nervous. Here's the problem. There is no definition for what a church person looks like. There's no height requirement. There's no skin color requirement. There's no linguistic requirement. There's no nationalistic requirement requirement that anybody who is a human being who has oxygen in their lungs, which we all prize right now, anybody who's a human being who has oxygen in their lungs can call on the Lord Jesus and become church people, can become part of the church. But we don't think of it that way because in our fallen, busted humanity, we put parameters on what a church person looks like or even more damaging, we put parameters on what we think our church people should look like. Well, these are the people that should go to this church and these are the people that should go to this church. That's not scriptural at all. In fact, I'm going to go farther than saying that's not scriptural. I'm going to say that's actually demonic. That's anti-Jesus. That you should not be putting parameters on what someone who can come to Christ or someone who should be welcome amongst Christ's people should look like. We, we judge like that, though. We have these preconceived notions. Samuel, like, Sam, Samuel, like we have the tendency to do, he evaluated Eliab and his likely usefulness to God by his outward appearance. And and when we meet a person for the first time, right, you think about it, all we have to go on is outward appearance. And so our tendency could be to say, well, people are going to evaluate you by your outward appearance, right? So if people are going to evaluate you by your outward appearance, shouldn't you make an effort to look presentable, to look desirable, to look like a good Christian man or a good Christian woman? Y'all, what does a good Christian man or a good Christian woman look like? Find me somewhere in your Bible where it tells me what a Christian man or a Christian woman looks like. What do they wear? What are they dressing? in? Like, I mean, yes, I guess you could say some things about modesty. You could say some stuff about that. That's, but but that's, there are actually moral reasons for that. There's not a moral reason to wear a specific type of clothes to church. Preferably, you would just wear clothes that cover you. You know that's that that's pretty much it. but shouldn't we if people are going to evaluate you based on your outward appearance, shouldn't you shouldn't you do something about that? Again, we're Baptists. Check your Bible. Who did God correct here? Did God correct the liar or did God correct Samuel? God corrected Samuel. God corrected the evaluator, not the evaluated. We can't tell people to come as they are and then not love them when they get here. God doesn't do that, and neither should we. God possesses a completely different standard of evaluation that has nothing to do with outward appearance. You say, but pastor, I can't evaluate somebody by their heart when they meet them. I can't see that. Exactly. So don't come to any conclusions based on what you see. Don't try and find a better way to evaluate. How about you just don't evaluate? How about we just not evaluate? How about you let God God do the heart evaluations and us just love Him in obedience to Jesus? Think about the people who missed Jesus in the New Testament. The ones who missed him in the New Testament were the most violently opposed to him were the ones who evaluated him based on what they saw. They were the ones that missed Jesus. So let's stop for just a second and think about how we can apply this to our lives. God doesn't utilize external evaluations, and neither should we. Look at what James has to say in chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, James says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place and say to the poor man you sit there or sit here at my footstool have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with what kind of thoughts what kind of thoughts evil thoughts that you get into this trap of evaluation and you start making evil evaluations that it's it's just flat not christian that you look at somebody and you say oh well they look like this they come from this place or even more insidious even worse You know what they did. You know what they did. I know what they did. This whole town knows what they did. That's not the kind of person we want in this church. Absolutely, it's the kind of person we want in this church. Absolutely, it's the kind of person we want in this church. What do you do? If a person's sick and dying, do you say, before you go to the hospital, I want you to get well because we don't want folks with what you got in this hospital? No, that's stupid. The kind of people we want to come to this church are breathing. Because every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we don't need to do what James says and hold the faith of our Lord with partiality, with evil thoughts. That God doesn't utilize external evaluations and neither should we. You have no idea what somebody can be once Jesus gets a hold of them. God's not looking for perfect people. God comes looking for flawed people. Jesus didn't come to call the perfect. He came to call the flawed. Jesus didn't come to call the perfect. He came to call the flawed. Look at this from Luke chapter 5. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And Le- Levi's a tax collector. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Now this is not a desirable crowd to the Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. Zero in on that last line. Look at what Jesus said. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Excuse me. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. Now, ask yourself about these Pharisees. Ask yourself about these folks. Is Jesus saying you guys are well, so you don't need to repent? You guys are perfect. There's nothing wrong with you, so you don't need to repent. Is that what Jesus is saying? Because he says those who are well have no need of a physician. So Jesus, the great physician, is he saying you guys are fine? You guys are perfect? You don't actually need anything? No, that's not what he's saying at all. What Jesus is saying is you guys don't recognize your need for a physician because you think everything's fine. Y'all, as church folks, we do a real bad job at this, that we can pretend we've got everything together when the reality is we're all tore up from the floor up. There's nothing about us that's put together. Anybody who acts like they've got everything put together, they are lying to your face. We're all busted and broken down people. We're just beggars telling other beggars where to buy bread here at this church. That nobody in here is perfect. Nobody's going to claim to be perfect. This pastor is certainly not claiming to be perfect. I'm saved by the grace of God, given grace that I don't deserve. The blood of Jesus is the reason that I am where I am today, not any personal qualifications that I have. You say, oh, well, I don't know of anything horrible that I did. Well, here's a great example. Stop and think, if you're a Christian, if you think, oh, well, those folks have done all this. They're, they, they've got complicating factors. I don't know that I necessarily want to be around them. Stop for just a second and think. So may, maybe you can't think of something major that you've done. First off, being lost doesn't require you to do anything major. It requires any old sin. Any, any sin will do. Any sin is enough to condemn you and damn you to hell. And every single sinner in the same proportion needs the blood of Jesus because any sin equals eternal death Death, the blood of Jesus equals eternal life. It doesn't matter uh, who you are, how much you've done, but stop and think this just for a second. Let's say you came to Christ early in your life, that Jesus Christ has kept you from a life of blatant open sin. Do the thought experiment and contemplate what your life would have looked like if Jesus had not saved you. If you had lived that life, would you have been welcomed into a church by you? If you were sitting in the pews of a church, the you now, sitting in the pews of a church, and the you that could have been walked in the back door, would you want them there? The reality is that all of us are really in the same boat. That Jesus, thank God, came to call the flawed. That Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, which is good because I'm not righteous. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, that God is not looking for flawless appearances. God is not looking for flawless people. God is looking for flawed people who know they're flawed to come to Jesus and be saved. Jesus doesn't come to call the perfect. He comes to perfect the called. Jesus will one day make you perfect if you come to him. Not on this earth, but in his presence. Jesus will perfect you. If he calls you and he's calling you today. How do I know you're listening to this? So God's not looking for flawless appearances. And then finally, lastly, God chooses the unexpected. God chooses the unexpected. Isn't that good to know Uh, that, that if you were looking for somebody, hopefully this is not an issue of pride. If your initial response is, oh, yes, God would God would certainly have chosen me. We got other sins that we got to deal with. Uh, but if you're honest with yourself and you look in the mirror in the morning and you go, I do not know for the life of me what the God of glory in heaven wants something to do with me. I just can't figure it out. I don't know why he would. The good news is that God chooses the unexpected. That God chooses the unexpected. He chooses the small, the lowly, the overlooked. Look at verse eight of 1 Samuel chapter 16. So Jesse called Abinadab, this is his second son, and made him pass before Samuel and said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And all of Jesse's sons go by in front of Samuel, and God goes, nope, 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 nope. One too few nopes, one too many nopes, I don't know. But the idea is that God goes through Jesse's first six sons and says, I don't want any of them to be king. I've rejected all of them. And so Samuel says, are all your sons here? Are all the young men here? Because God told me that one of your sons is the one I need to see. And the way that Jesse answers is actually pretty funny. Uh, he says, well, yeah, I've got one more. I've got the runt. I've got the baby. And he's out keeping the sheep. Uh, y'all, shepherds were kind of weird in the ancient world. They spent a lot of the time with their sheep. They would smell like them. They would sometimes sleep outside you know, with the sheep because you don't want something to come up in the middle of the night and, and take them. <clears throat> so if David's been out there for any uh, number of years, then he's probably done this a few times, spent the night outside under the stars. And uh, we know that uh, David had dealt with wild animals, fending them off from sheep. You, you hear that in the Goliath incident. So, um, so this is, this is, this is the weird kid uh, out of the bunch. He's certainly not a liab. Um, so, Uh, Samuel gets David, brings him in, and God says, yep, he's the one. The one that Jesse didn't even consider bringing along, because surely Samuel would not want to see him. The one that he didn't even think of bringing along is the one that God wanted the whole time. So first and foremost, I want to stop at David, and I want to look at similarities to Jesus. David, from Bethlehem. Jesus, Bethlehem. Both from Bethlehem. Second, when Jesus was born, where was he born? He's in a manger, right? Amongst all the animals. Well, where did they have to go to find David? Amongst the animals. Third, did anybody expect the king of the universe to show up like Jesus did? No, nobody expected it. They expected him to come in on a, on a white horse and overthrow Rome, and, and just everybody's going to, the angels are going to come in with their flaming swords, and they're going to, take God's people and they're going to gather them together and the kingdom's going to be ushered in and everything's going to, no, that's not the way Jesus came. Jesus came and when he finally entered Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, he doesn't come in on a white horse. He comes in on a donkey that the religious leaders of the day miss him and the tax collectors and, and, and harlots and everybody else, they see him and they recognize who he is. So the unexpected see him and the expected totally miss him that David is the the weird kid who's out with the sheep and Jesus born in a manger and nobody expected either of them uh, to become king. And yet, here you go, that God wants the unexpected. And then second, I want us to look at God's flair for the unexpected. Think of the other people throughout scripture that God has called. He calls Paul. Ironically, when he calls him the first time, he's known as Saul. He was a professional Christian hunter. Uh, and God calls him to be an apostle. Don't you to think about Matthew? Matthew that we just read about in Luke five—he's a tax collector. He's a tax collector. You got the Samaritan woman in John four. The Samaritan woman. The Samaritan Jews didn't even want to deal with Samaritans. But if you go to John four in Jesus' ministry, it said he must go through Samaria. That Jesus had to go through there because God wanted to speak to that particular city through that particular woman. And then finally, Jesse himself. Jesse was unexpected. You have to go back a couple of generations, but if you go back and look, Jesse's father was a man named Obed. Now, we don't know much about Obed. Obed's only mentioned a few times in scripture, but Obed's dad, we know a lot about. Obed's dad was a man named Boaz. And more famous than Boaz is Boaz's wife. Her name was Ruth. Ruth wasn't even an Israelite to begin with. She was from Moab. Moab was a cursed people. They did not get along with Israel. And yet, Ruth leaves Moab and comes with her mother-in-law Naomi and says, no, I'm one of your people now. Your God is my God. Your home is my home. Where you go, I go. That I am leaving all of that behind and I'm coming to become part of Israel. So Ruth becomes an Israelite and Ruth marries Boaz and God blesses them and God gives Ruth a child named Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse and Jesse has a son named David who becomes king, who Jesus is even from that line. Nobody would have even expected Jesse to exist three generations ago, but he is the grandson of a Moabite that nobody would have pegged as being a matron of Israel. Nobody's even going to predict that, that God loves the unexpected. If you want to know how to 100% tell what God is going to do, if it's something that you came up with, it's probably not God's idea because anytime God does something, it is absolutely bonkers crazy. Now it works because God does it, but you never can call what God's going to do because God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. They're way bigger. They're way higher. So what do you do when God starts speaking and it doesn't make sense to you when it's very different? Well, first off, if God calls, just hush and follow him. If God calls, just hush and follow him and then support others that he's called to. Even if they don't look like you, even if they don't sound like you, even if they don't uh, don't have the same routines and rituals that you do. When God calls somebody to salvation in Christ, just hush and support them. When God calls you to serve him, just hush and do it. Look at uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. This is right after God had called Peter to go speak to Cornelius. Cornelius, who was a dirty pig eating bacon-loving Gentile like the rest of us. Acts chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. uh, Peter's in the middle of this vision where God is telling him, now you need to go back and you need to read the context. I wasn't going to put the whole thing on a slide for you right here. Go back and read Acts chapter 10 and 11. God's told Peter uh, in a vision, uh, He sees all these uh, unclean animals, according to Jewish dietary law, come down in the sheet. And in it it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord. So Peter knows who he's talking to. For I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I am ritually pure, Jesus. And I am not going to give that up on account of you. You're holier than Jesus, Peter. Come on. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And right after this, that's when God tells Peter, You're about to go share the gospel with the Gentile. You need to go into that house. You need to not avoid them. You need to not distance yourself from them. Uh, You need to go and you need to share the gospel with him because that's what I want you to do. And Peter does it, and the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And aren't you thankful? Because we're Gentiles that the gospels come to. That was what broke it into the church's mind that the gospel could come to the Gentiles, that God did this with Cornelius through Peter. This was totally and completely unexpected. They never would have predicted it. They never would have called it. It was completely out of the ordinary, yet God did it. And then second, if you've been overlooked, you need to rejoice. Because you're the kind of person that God's calling. He's calling you today. How do I know? You're watching this. Check this out. Acts chapter 13, verses 47 through 48. And Paul's preaching, he says, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as been appointed to eternal light believe. Why? Because these Gentiles had been ostracized away from God by the Jews for so long. And when I'm saying the Jews, I don't mean just Jews as an ethnicity. I mean the religious group of the Jews in this period of Scripture. That this was not just a, an ethnic difference. This was a religious difference. This was a cultural difference. That they would not even go into the houses of Gentiles. Well, the Jews knew the living God. Or so they thought but they had rejected Jesus when he came and the Gentiles were beginning to accept them. So when the gospel is preached and, and they hear that I've set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth to realize that Jesus came for them. Rejoice. To quote another sermon that I listened to this week, you can come to Christ. You can come to Jesus. And Satan may tell you, oh, no, 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 no. You got things in your life that, that you, need to, you need to get out of the way first. You need to put that liquor away before you go to those church people. You need to put that lifestyle away. You need to put that substance away before you come to Jesus. He's not going to want anything to do with you as long as you're messed up. Oh, no, 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 no. No, Satan lies. Satan lies. Satan lies. Paul was a murderer. Matthew was a thief. The Samaritan woman was an outcast. And Jesse shouldn't have even been alive. And God did amazing things through every single one of those. Why can God not do amazing things through you? Why can he not save you? Why can he not redeem you? Why can he not use you? Well, I got news for you. He can and he wants to. All you got to do is give your life to Christ. You can fall on your knees and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm going to tell you how to do that right now. But you can bow your head right there in the comfort of your home and you can say, God, I am a sinner. I don't deserve you. I don't deserve a relationship with you. But I believe that you love me. I believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for me in my place on the cross. That I deserve death for my sins. But Jesus came and died the death that I deserved and gave me the life, eternal life, that I can live forever with you. That I believe they killed him, but I believe he didn't stay dead. I believe three days later he rose and right now he's sitting at your right hand, Father. And I need him to be my advocate. I need him to be my defender. Jesus, I need you to save me. Forgive me through your blood and call me one of your own and I'll call you my Lord, my Savior, and my Master. You can pray that today, and Jesus will save you. You can pray that today, and Jesus will save you. You don't need to call me. You don't need to sit down with me. You don't need to sit in a little box and tell me every wrong thing you've ever done. You need to tell Jesus that you're a sinner and ask Him to save you, and He will. You need to believe that He's alive, and He'll save you. Not only will He save you, He'll call you to service. He'll put you to work. He's got, a, he's got a place for you in his kingdom. And we at Stapleton Baptist want to walk with you uh, down that road. We want to help you find your next steps. If you've given your life to Christ today, if you've asked him to forgive you. Uh, so let me give you a couple of announcements as we go right after we pray. And that way you'll know how to catch up with us after listening to the sermon this morning. So let's pray and go to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to share the gospel with folks whenever and wherever they may be. I pray that we would take it to our heart that you're not a uh, a God who expects ritual and, and works out of us to be saved, but Lord, that you call us uh, unexpectedly. Lord, you call us flawed people, us broken people, and you perfect those who you call, that you make us into something more than what we are for your glory and not for our own. Jesus, I pray that you'd apply this word to the heart of our people, and Lord, you'd glorify yourself by growing in Baptist Church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So I want to share with you Uh, a couple of announcements before we leave. First off, uh, you need to know that you can follow up with us at uh, stapletonbaptist.org, that you can uh, go to our church website right now. This will have up to date all of our information as to what's going on uh, with coronavirus and all that stuff right now, uh, that you can go to stapletonbaptist.org and right on the front page, it'll have, Uh, all of the information about what services we're having, what services we're not having. Also on stapletonbaptist.org, you can join our mailing list. That If you click on about right at the top of the website, which I don't know why I pointed, because you're going to either see this on Facebook or a page that doesn't have about right there. If you go back to the main page of our website, you can click about and go under contact us. There's a link that says join our mailing list. Do that. Um, That way when I send emails out, particularly during this coronavirus season, you'll know what's going on at Stapleton Baptist Church. So uh, first announcement is that you need to head on over to stapletonbaptist.org. Second announcement is that if you're uh, a Facebook user and you're not seeing this on Facebook right now, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash stapletonbaptistga, facebook.com backslash stapletonbaptistga. Uh you can, you can like the page, you can follow the page, you can uh, uh, keep up with everything that we got going on there, that if we've got events going on there, cancellations going on there, you'll know it from our Facebook page. So that's facebook.com backslash Stapleton Baptist GA. Anytime I post something, it's going to be in those two places. It's going to be on our website, uh, either on the front page. It's going to come to you through our email list, which you can also find through our website or and or it's going to be post, posted on Facebook. So pay close attention to those things right there. Uh, I love you guys. That's my time. So I'm going to go ahead and hit the stop recording button right now and we're going to call it a day. I love y'all, and y'all reach out if you need something. Glory to God in Christ, Pastor Josh. We'll see y'all later.